0: Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is cmo CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Daniel Nygren. Dr. Nygren is Chief Information Officer at Maine Health. He has an experienced physician with over 30 years of practice history with an accomplished history of driving positive change using technology and healthcare systems. He's also the current Chairman of the Board of Trustees for Chime, and the creator of electronic music on the side. Dr. Nagrin, Dan, welcome
1: to the show. Thanks so much, Alan. A thrill to be here and excited for what I'm sure is gonna be a fun conversation.
0: Absolutely, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show today. Your career journey has just been so unique, really blending music and medicine and technology all together. You're now the CIO at Health after helming the IT ship over at Boston Children's for almost 30 years, but your journey in medicine started as a pediatric endocrinologist. So I'm really curious, let's start the conversation there. What got you into pediatric endocrinology?
1: So this is uh, an interesting story in and of itself to kick us off. So my dad was a pediatric endocrinologist and you know really specialized in taking care of kids with diabetes, but all kinds of other hormonal disorders. And one thing to know about both my dad and my mom is that neither of them were very pushy, like, oh, Danny, you've got to be a uh, doctor and father to son, like, son, you need to follow in my footsteps or anything like that. Zero. But somehow there must have been something subliminal because I saw that my dad was very happy in what he was doing. And I saw interactions with him and his patients, actually, believe it or not. My dad used to invite patients, newly diagnosed kids with diabetes and their families to our home so he could sort of teach them stuff to, you know, what they needed to pay attention to with regard to managing the disease and stuff. Like, think about that nowadays. If your doctor invited you to their house to, like, continue the conversation from your clinic appointment, that's kind of crazy, but he did that stuff. And so I got to experience some of that. And I think subliminally, that must have impacted me. Fast forward to med school and residency, I really enjoyed my time in, you know, learning about endocrinology. It was a very logical subspecialty. You learn a few set of fundamental principles, and most of the time you could just figure out what to do for a particular disorder, as long as you relied on those fundamental principles. And then thirdly, I went and got type one diabetes when I was 11 years old. So very ironic because that was my dad's subspecialty, but you know, when it came time to choose my own subspecialty, the subliminal stuff that I was talking about before and my enjoyment of the actual content, But I figured, you know, it would be one less disease that I'd have to learn because (laughs) I was already living with it and I kind of knew that one pretty well. So I said, yeah, why not? So that's how I ended up in pediatric endocrinology. Well, You definitely had a passion for technology, it seems. But where did that start? I think that started early, like middle school, high school. These were the early days of computing and personal computers. Vividly remember when my high school got the very first Radio Shack TRS-80s. Trash 80s, as they used to be called. And there was like a little computer lab with two or three of them. And of course you, you learned the basic computer programming language. If you were really interested in it, you could learn machine code. And so i i just was hooked on that stuff and at first it was just because you know like most kids you were interested in in learning how to program computer games and stuff like that but gradually i got more and more into the underpinnings and some of the other things that you could do with it so the seed was planted in college i did a little bit of computer science but certainly not a lot i wasn't a computer science major and it really wasn't until fellowship when i finished my medical training and and residency and i was thinking about careers and research that i became aware of this fledgling new domain called medical informatics clinical informatics this is just before really most organizations were starting to digitize things and all of a sudden i remembered you know wow i really have this latent interest in computing and obviously my interest in medicine wouldn't it be cool if i could glom these things together. And I was thrilled to find out that there was, you know, fellowship programs available, and this was a potential career path. So that's kind of what got me started. I'm kind of curious, like if you were to
2: go through school today, do you think you would still have ended up in medicine? Or do you feel like with how quickly technology now moves, you actually might have ended up more of a tech first career
1: instead? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, Josh. It's possible. I I will say that I absolutely love the care aspect of medicine. That was also an early desire of mine. I initially thought I was going to be a veterinarian, but then when I found out that that wasn't just dogs and cats, but it was like farm animals and stuff too, I was like, all right, I'm not going to do that. And and I landed in medicine instead. But I, I can't tell you what a good feeling it is knowing that you've helped A person or a family in the case of pediatrics. And that still resonates with me. So I guess I wouldn't have had that experience if I'd gone into a tech first career, but I got to think that I would have had that sort of latent desire, just like I had the latent desire to get back into computing. It probably would have gone the other way. And so maybe I would have ended up in the same place. Not sure though. It's a good question.
2: And you know, kind of going back to the story you shared about growing up and the influence from your father, I mean, like you said, back then, you would have you know patients and families come to your home and, and spend more time and educate and support them. And then nowadays, we're hearing about all the burnout and the workforce shortages. And I've seen stats such as 70% of physicians now wouldn't recommend a career in medicine to their own children. I'm kind of curious, like any feedback on, you know, how do we actually bring that sense of joy back to medicine? So that way, kind of what you had growing up, we can make happen again for, you know, future folks growing up in medicine.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm fooling myself, but I think that we're at an incredible inflection point within uh, medicine. And it's because of technology and it's because of all of the new things that we're starting to see possible with regard to AI and how it might help alleviate some of that stress and all the other things that are influencing burnout. I'll give a good example. So you're probably aware of some of the new AI-based ambient documentation system where there's basically intelligence behind the scenes listening to conversation between doctor and patient and not only having the ability to transcribe that conversation, but to infer meaning from it and to essentially draft the encounter's documentation just by listening to the encounter. I mean, that's magic to me. That's like Star Trek kind of stuff. And if that were the case, it would have alleviated so much stress that I had during my clinical years in my early fellowship and attending years where you love seeing your patients, you love taking care of their problems and seeing them react positively to that stuff. But then you absolutely dreaded the stuff that comes after the visit in terms of the documentation and the burden that that causes you. Or, you know, even worse, like forcing you to concentrate on the computer to do the documentation while the patient's still in the room. And then you're not really even listening to them or looking at them. And that is just completely unnatural and just a horrible patient experience, too. So, I mean, that's just one example. And there's a myriad, a number of things that I think are coming down the pike, not five, ten years from now, like next year or six months from now. So I'm incredibly optimistic, and I don't gush over tech all the time. In fact, I'm pretty skeptical at this point because I've been doing this for a while, but I'm absolutely gushing over this stuff now because I do think it's real, and I think it's going to have an incredibly positive impact on addressing some of that strain and malaise that people have and why they're not recommending it anymore.
2: So it sounds like back then there was so much joy in the actual focus on medicine and the actual patient care piece. We got away from that with all the documentation, other administrative things that had to happen. And your thing is hey, if we can actually get back to that point where it was about the patient and medicine, we can bring that joy back. And technology could be a real big enabler.
1: For sure. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not the silver bullet that's going to cure all of healthcare in the United States. The, the ills that we've got now. Because a lot of it is regulatory, a lot of it is the way our system is structured. And I'm not sure that the tech is necessarily going to solve that. But we can for sure alleviate a bunch of the burdens that that we're experiencing now. Makes total sense.
0: So Dan I wanted to get your take on this, you know, you brought up the idea of medicine and technology and how you've always been a proponent of kind of mashing worlds together. In that vein of mashups during your medical years, really got into DJing. And I think it was first with the college radio and then actually at nightclubs as well. Where did that passion come from? Was med
1: school like not enough for you or Well, so let me tell you how it started. It did start in college and it was random. The college radio station, WJHU, super small 10 watt station. Like if you could hear it a mile or two miles away from the center of campus, you were lucky, right? It was a good day. The station was based in the dorms of the university. And so it literally was like, you know, 10 paces walk from where I was living. And so I walked by it all the time. And one day a friend who had started to go DJ there, he said, Hey, you should come in and check it out. It's kind of cool inside, a lot of equipment and stuff. And so I went in and, you know. Records all over the place. This is the world of vinyl records still. And lots of mixing boards and and gear, just like he said. And it was kind of cool for a techie kind of guy like me. I was kind of taken by it. And then on top of it, they actually had an open slot. Now, granted, the slot was on Wednesday mornings from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So not prime time for sure. But I was like, okay, I'll try. You know, I was a sophomore in college. What did I have to lose? and I loved it. It was fantastic. I got exposed to all kinds of new music that I had never heard of before, as is the case on most college radio stations, and I was just hooked right away. What happened next is then, again, as you do in college, you're exploring all kinds of new worlds, and turns out there were some new nightclubs opening in the city, and so me and a bunch of friends found our way to these clubs, and wouldn't you know it, a lot of the music being played in these places was the exact same music that I was playing on the college radio station. And so one thing led to another, I got some demo cassette tapes at the time submitted into these nightclubs to see if they needed any DJs. And lo and behold, I got a spot playing in one of these nightclubs, which is a pretty prominent one at the time. And again, I got hooked on that really early on. And that led to other spots at other nightclubs all around the city. And, you know, I was on my way. So answering your question of, like, how did I do this while I was in college and ultimately then med school even, and my answer has historically been, I don't think I could have gotten through med school if I hadn't done this stuff, because it was absolutely an outlet for me. It was released, a whole new different group of people that were kind of exciting, alternative club crowd. And you know, it just, it gave me better balance. And yeah, I was tired, right? If I was DJing all night and then I had to go to class the next morning or study for some anatomy final or something, it, it was painful at times, but I wouldn't have changed the thing about it. It was a great experience.
0: So, and then at a certain point, you did actually start your own record label as well. What pushed you down that path? I think that was right around, you had already graduated. And so you're, you're going into medicine, you started this label. How did that happen?
1: Yeah, so it was towards the tail end of med school, I think, and maybe the start of residency. I'm I'm blurring the years, but basically me and another DJ friend from one of these nightclubs, you know, we looked at one another one day and we said, you know what? We've listened to enough of this music that makes people dance and what people enjoy. We've listened to it for long enough, we kind of know what works. Why don't we try our own hand at making some of our own music? And mind you, neither of us were musicians, like barely able to, you know, read a musical note on a staff kind of thing. But we're talking about electronic music and stuff generated by computers and synthesizers and stuff, again, kind of falling into my tech domain. So we said, yeah, let's try. And so we went out bought a bunch of drum machines and synthesizers and stuff and just started messing around. You know we played a few things that we came up with to friends and our friends were like you know guys this isn't bad actually you know they were expecting that it would be horrible but it was okay and they gave us encouragement and so again we made some demo cassettes right and started mailing them to all these independent record labels all over the world and lo and behold we got signed to this really pretty solid label in belgium to put out our first release And we were over the moon, you know, we got cash advance and I was like, hell, I'm going to, you know, go and be a musician instead of being a doctor. Thankfully I didn't choose that path, but it was exciting. And you know, we were off to the races and we just started cranking out lots of new music and ended up licensing our stuff to lots of other labels all around the world and in the States too. And then one day we again looked at one another and we said, why are we dealing with all of these other small independent labels all over the world? why don't we start our own label? And so the band name was called Glitch because whenever things would go wrong, it always sounded better than what we had intended to do in the first place. So we went with that. And then when it came time to start the record label, kind of in sync with the the name Glitch, we decided to call it Defective Records. So Defective Records was born first as a vehicle for us to put out our own music, but ultimately other people started sending us their demos. And so we ended up putting out lots of other people's music from all over the world over the span of about Four or five years. Great, great thought. Yeah. That's so cool.
2: Dan, I I have to ask you. So, you know, with the explosion of of generative AI, and um, I'm not sure if you've played around with some of the the new tools when it comes to making music, but you could imagine a future where, let's say, Spotify learns all your favorite types of music and eventually just generates personalized music to each user, maybe even just making musicians like obsolete to some extent, even though I hate the idea of that. Love to get your take on how you think about the future of music and and how Jared and AI might change
1: that. Yeah, I'm not worried about it. I see these tools as just that, as tools. You know, uh, going back to synthesizers, right? With the advent of synthesizers, I mean, there were literally protests early on by professional musicians because they were under the impression that their jobs were at risk, right? That these new tools that could emulate a guitar and a violin and whatever else we're going to supplant them and that they would be left you know high and dry and obviously that didn't occur and the new tools were used in creative ways to generate you know new kinds of music i see ai and its application in music frankly in medicine too which we'll i'm assuming we'll get back to at some point i see it in a similar way i'm not worried. I do think we have to go in with eyes open, right? We can't have blinders on and just say, oh, it's all going to be fine and not have some level of concern. But I think we will adapt. I think we're going to use these things in creative ways and it'll unlock new doors and provide new possibilities for us. Will everyone's roles be exactly the same? Will musicians have to adapt? Will clinicians have to adapt in medicine? Yeah, but I'm not frightened by it. I'm embracing of it. Yeah.
2: I love that. I do have to ask you at least one more music question before we talk about- Oh, no, how... we can
1: stay on music the oh, whole yeah. time.
2: <laughs> well, so, you know, our, our mutual friend, C.T. Len, you know, he's an awesome performer with his ukulele and his original songs at Chime and other, other events. Has there been, and if not yet, will there be a remix of Epic Man done by your electronic music <laughs> skills?
1: That's great. I, I just saw CT uh, the in the last week, so I should ask him for the uh, raw recordings, and <laughs> I'll come up with a techno version. <laughs> All right, you hear here first, folks. Yeah. Out. Uh, that's awesome.
0: So, Dan, I do
1: want to bring it a little bit back to medicine. Your
0: involvement with Defective Records and your DJ days really bring an artistic flair to your profile. And so I'm curious how you see or how you at least think about creativity and innovation and how that intersects with your role as CIO in healthcare. Do you see parallels
1: between music creation and healthcare technology implementation? Yeah, 100%. When I work on my own software, because I I have a software angle to my music side Uh too, but I see it, sure, as a technical challenge, but I also see creativity and beauty, actually, in a lot of that development. And I think that creativity is absolutely required in what we do in medicine and what we do in the technology that's applied in medicine. This was for sure the case when organizations were developing a lot of their own software, which clearly is now less of the case. There's a lot less self-development. But I absolutely think that creative ideas are always going to be required, whether you're using off-the-shelf products or whether you're doing custom development. I think the great examples are you know, during the time of COVID, right? We had to move on a dime. We had to use tools that we had. And yet we had to solve new problems that we hadn't had before. And somehow all of our organizations stepped up. And I saw that as being really creative and thinking in innovative ways. And clearly we did a good job on that, I think from a, from a technology perspective. So I absolutely think there's a role for creativity. And when I'm interviewing people for roles in my own organization, I look for that. Actually, I love hearing about some stories that they might bring to the table that demonstrates some of that creativity, even if it's not directly related to the job, because it gives me some insight into how that person thinks. Yeah. No,
0: for sure. And actually, I'm glad you brought up music software, some of the software builds that you've done in the past. One of them, or actually many of them that I've seen when I was doing a little research on you, you created software for synthesizers and samplers that you had never even seen in the flesh yourself. So The way that you went about that, I believe, was crowdsourcing, reaching out to other people who had those synthesizers to then feed you some information so you could build the software. And that is such an awesome way to show just how you think outside of the box and your flexibility when it comes to building and really getting something done. I'm curious if you've, and maybe you've hinted at it with COVID, but where have you applied that same type of flexibility in your role as CIO?
1: Yeah, thank you for picking up on that. And yeah, I've done that a bunch of times now, at least two or three times with my music software. And I I think it's reflective of how important teamwork is. In those instances, I didn't have the physical piece of equipment. I knew what I needed to do if I had that piece of physical equipment. And so I just figured out ways in which I could essentially bring on friends and collaborators who I could ask to do those steps for me. And so just through teamwork and internet and being able to share that way, We were able to solve the problem and so when i see a problem internally inevitably within our it groups for large organizations it requires incredible teamwork between different groups that have particular areas of expertise and so i see those same principles absolutely in applying to my role as cio and overseeing these disparate teams that got to get the job done so yeah it's a fun point in my career and it's a bit of learning that has helped me in my role as cio as well
0: one thing that you're pretty notable for back in 2014, while you were leading the IT team over at Boston Children's, you dealt firsthand with a cyber attack, I believe led by Anonymous with a capital A. What lessons did you learn from that experience? And how did that event shape the, the view that you have today as you go about healthcare IT?
1: Yeah, uh, thanks, Alan. That, that was a harrowing experience. It, it's hard to believe that it was almost 10 years ago now. But yeah, it was incredibly stressful. We were subject of a, of a massive denial-of-service attack. And I think the the lesson that I learned there, and again, you have to sort of wind backwards to almost 10 years ago and realize that this was the time before things like all the ransomware attacks that have impacted healthcare organizations were, were prevalent. At the time, the big cyber risk that we were all sort of leery of was around attackers getting to patient data and and monetizing patient data and taking it from us. And so the big concern that we all had at the time was protect the data, that's what the bad guys are going after. But this was very different because they were less eager, at least I, I think, The attackers were less eager at going after our data, but more eager to disrupt through a denial of service attack. And so I think this was one of the first times in which a cyber attack on a healthcare facility was one in which the impact was not so much around the protection of the patient data, but rather of operations. Healthcare organizations had started to become more and more digitized. We relied more and more on these systems just to run our organizations to care for patients. And so the aha moment for us during this event was, oh my God, this is not about us safeguarding data. This is about us keeping people alive and caring for them while they're in the hospital. And all of a sudden the impact was, you know, even more important for us to protect against. And it was sort of a wake up call, I think for me, for sure, but I'd venture to say for our industry. and. Sure enough, although maybe it's not DDoS attacks that are plaguing everyone now, we've got something equally, if not more disruptive, and that's all of the ransomware attacks, which we've seen has impacted patient care, has forced facilities to close their doors or divert care. You know, all of the things that we were nervous about then have, in fact, come to light. And I'd love to say that we were getting ahead of this problem, but we're not. It's still a huge risk that we've all got. And again, getting back to the AI stuff, I think this is going to make our lives even more difficult because those bad folks are are utilizing AI as well. And pretty soon we'll have that challenge ahead of us. So again, it was an incredibly positive experience in that ultimately the uh, the perpetrators were apprehended by the FBI and brought to justice. So great sort of end to that story, but definitely a, a wake up call for me and for all of us, I think.
2: I'm curious, like, have you found that, so over time, I'm guessing your investment in technology, and not just your organizations, but in many other health systems, probably increased over the last 10 years, despite efficiencies that have been created by technology, have you found that your cybersecurity investment just increased proportionally? Is that basically what happens?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And not just in the tech either, Josh, it's in the people, both on on my own team but also around our educational efforts. This can't be just the IT department minding things. This has gotta be everyone within an organization because as you know, the vehicle by which a lot of these exploits happen is through phishing emails or through social engineering or other approaches that you're only as safe as your weakest link. And so we absolutely have to have a big push around education and making people aware of the risks and and the impact. And sometimes those are tough conversations too, because it requires us to do, you know, things like locking down computers and things that maybe make people's lives a little bit more difficult than what they were accustomed to before. But I always say that, you know, that small inconvenience compared to the inconvenience that a downtime or a ransomware event would bring with it, those things pale in comparison to uh, to the potential risk. So that's kind of where we're at right now. But yeah, a lot of investment and, and increasing year after year.
2: You know, the phishing scams had gotten so sophisticated. I mean, not just the ones by email, but even, you know, with AI generated audio where you can basically steal someone's voice, like in the past, probably be like, okay hey, like if I call you, then you can believe it. Now it's someone calls me. Is it actually Alan calling me? Do I have to like, physically go see Alan in person to like make sure like it's actually Alan asking me to do something? It's, it's getting pretty scary out there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, don't give him any ideas, Josh. we <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> cut that part out of the podcast.
2: Yeah. Oh boy.
0: So Dan, after 26 plus years over at Boston Children's slash Harvard, you were studying there as well before, you left the nest and you traveled a few hundred miles Northeast over to Maine Health. What motivated that move?
1: Well, one, Alan, is that uh, exactly what you said. I had been at that one organization, you know, storied and and incredible as it is for a really long time. And I wanted to see how things operated in other organizations, in other parts of the country. You know, as great as Boston is and as much of a home for a lot of sort of healthcare informatics and a lot of the early giants in the field, as much as of an incredible place as that is, it's also a little bit of a bubble. And I kind of started to get glimpses of that when I would talk with my colleagues through organizations like Chime and so on. And so I kind of wanted to get a little bit of a sense of how things worked outside of that bubble. I also wanted to get a bit more experience at managing in a bigger organization. So, Children's Hospital is primarily just a single great facility, but a single one. And I wanted to see how managing the IT oversight of multiple facilities and of varying sizes and degrees of complexity, too. And so, what's great about Maine Health is that although it's still a nonprofit academic healthcare system, Although we do have the big, you know, 700-bed academic healthcare facility based in Portland at Maine Medical Center, we also have some really small, you know, like 20, 25-bed critical access hospitals in really rural parts of the state. And that dichotomy really kind of excited me because I had no idea how you deploy systems that are going to work in both places at the same time. And that challenge was kind of interesting for me. And then finally, you know, venturing outside of the pediatrics world, I had always been a peds person, right? That was my clinical background, and I had worked in, with NIT there. I wanted to see how much different, if any, it was to operate in an adult and pediatrics organization. And so that's been interesting for me, too. And the short answer to that question is there's a lot alike. There's probably more alike than, than I anticipated, <laughs> but there are still some differences for sure. So yeah, those were the fundamental reasons for why I left the nest, as you say. And um, it's been a great experience. First of all, the organization is fantastic. Incredible leadership. I inherited a really top-notch IT team as well. And from a location point of view, Portland, Maine is a fantastic city. If you haven't been, you got to get there. Really vibrant, great arts community. The food and drink here is like world caliber, incredible, like top 50 restaurants in the country. There's oh. like multiple of them here in this little city. It's great. Yeah. Awesome. I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> Come on up. Don't maybe wait till warmer months. Yeah, right,
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, you've actually also shared in the past that patient engagement and digital enablement are key initiatives right now for mean Health. Could you share maybe some specific strategies that you're employing to enhance the patient experience
1: or really foster just active participation in healthcare? For sure. I mean, some of it is, is low hanging fruit. Honestly, Alan, healthcare as an industry, we've lagged behind other industries in, in sort of facilitating interactions w- with us. So, just simple stuff, at least on the surface, simple stuff like how do you make an appointment? I mean, the vast majority of healthcare appointments are still made by someone picking up a telephone, calling, inevitably waiting on hold for a while, maybe getting to the right person. That's like I can't believe we're still doing that in the in, you know, twenty twenty three. So just facilitating that kind of stuff. And that's not always easy in healthcare because we've got our established workflows and change is never easy. But just doing that and, and, you know, facilitating prescription refills and communicating with providers about issues, that kind of stuff is, I view it as low-hanging fruit, although you still got to jump kind of high to get it because it's real work. But, but clearly those are the table stakes that I think we all have to get to. But beyond that, doing other more interesting things like starting to get into providing more care in patients' homes. So whether or not you're formally doing hospital at home or even just doing more in terms of remote patient monitoring which frankly, I think is a lower lift, both from the patient's point of view as well as the healthcare organization's point of view, and potentially has a bigger impact even that we can realize those kinds of things are fantastic. And so we're we're absolutely pushing on those things. Hypertension programs, post-cardiac admissions for monitoring of patients in their home environments, things like that, I think we're gonna be doing lots and lots of moving forward. So just a few ways in which we're starting to push more in the digital domain.
2: Listen. I did want to touch a bit on ambient, which you, you brought up earlier. So I know sometimes when let's say the vendors are, are pitching ambient, there's some conversation around like, oh, we'll free up more time for higher throughput. And so there's going to be a positive ROI on revenue. But then also if you think about it, a lot of times the point of ambient is not really to give physicians more patience to see. Maybe it's just to like free up more time. And so I'm kind of curious when you think about success criteria for doing something like Ambient, like what are the key metrics or criteria that that you end up probably looking at to to be like, hey, is this actually working for us?
1: Yeah, it's a great point. That was a a question that our providers had early. Okay, you're going to give me this tool, but are we expected to now see an extra patient and that kind of thing? We've not mandated that. We're hoping for it for sure. And in fact, uh, organizations that have um, had a bit more experience than us who started a little bit before us, have actually published some results along these lines, which is that essentially just by doing it and by offloading the burden from providers, they do end up seeing incremental patients and actually are fine doing it because you reduce this stressor that they had. And they're in theory having more joy when they see their patients. So it's happening, but it's happening in a passive way. We're still too early on in our story with it to be able to document that, but Anecdotally, I can tell you that the subjective reports from the folks who it resonates with are absolutely stellar. People are overjoyed. The stories like, I've never finished my notes before I've gone home ever in my career, like a 30, 40 year career. So incredible anecdotes like that are gonna have a positive impact on morale and hopefully in turn with throughput too. What I will say is that it's not a tool for everyone. We've absolutely seen that too. And so I don't think mandating it is going to be right. And the reason why is that some people are especially particular of how their notes are structured or look. And also it does require a little bit of a change in how you interact with your patients because the thing is only able to act on what you say, on what's verbalized. Things like the physical exam now require a lot more verbalization on the part of the provider. So you have to say when you're listening to the patient's heart, well, I, I hear normal heart sounds. I don't hear any murmur. I feel a little bit of, of crepitus in your right knee, whatever. And that's a little bit of a learning curve for folks. And for some people, they just don't want to go there. So that kind of thing we're learning about and experiencing as we go. But far and away, I think um, the experience has been positive for most providers and patients too, I'll add. We're surveying patients who are having providers go through this. And they're thrilled, A, because their provider is actually looking at them and, and listening more than they were in the past. And then also when patients are now seeing the, the notes that they're reading in, you know, their portal afterwards, they're thrilled to see some of their actual words reflected in the documentation. So it seems more accurate, a reflection of the visit to them and more thorough. So it's definitely resonating for our patients as well
2: have you had any feedback around how this may have improved note quality? So maybe there are some folks who are, like you said, very picky about their notes, so their quality was outstanding in the first place, but maybe there are others where, let's be honest, didn't put much effort into their notes, but now that it's being automated, it's actually higher quality notes. Have you had any feedback
1: in that sense? Yeah, only anecdotal. One thing that we have noticed is that they're a little bit longer. So I guess there's pros and cons to that. So maybe if there was an exceptionally short but incomplete note, maybe a longer note is appropriate. On the other hand, you don't want to start generating a lot of note load and so on. What I will say though, we look at this from a billing and coding point of view as well. And again, this is work that's been published already in one instance, at least around. An initial thought was to your point, if the note is going to be more robust, maybe it's going to allow us to document more and justify coding at a higher level. That's not panned out. Most folks have seen that basically it's about the same as you would have had otherwise. And so it's not meant greater revenue or decreased revenue. It's justified essentially the same level of coding as what we've had before.
0: Makes sense. So one other thing, Dan, that I've really appreciated about something you've said in the past, how you think about pilots, you're thinking about scale from the very beginning. Can you maybe unpack some of your thoughts around that? And how do you communicate that with your teams?
1: Yeah. I'm a big fan of doing pilots, especially with some of these more radical new kinds of technologies. You don't want to go in full blast and only to have a disappointment afterwards. So I do think it's an absolutely critical step as you're evaluating new technologies. But you're right, Alan, I've made a big point in the past about making sure that when you go into pilots, that you're thinking about the next step. All right. Assume the pilot is successful. Are we sure that this technology is one that's robust enough for us to roll out full scale across the organization? Is it gonna be one that meshes well with our other infrastructures? Do we have sufficient staff in order to maintain and support this application? I think you've gotta think about that future state before you even start the pilot. Because if you're not ready to go that next step or if there's some flaw in the tech that would prevent you from going broader with it, well then why start in the first place? So in the past, I've had these conversations at Boston Children's with our chief innovation officer there. We used to joke and we coined the phrase CIO versus CIO, Um, you know, innovation officer versus information officer, because inevitably that the innovation officer would come up with these great revolutionary ideas with new tech and so on. And I, as the information officer would be like, hold on, you know, let's make sure that this is going to work. And there's a little bit of tension there. But we found it really fruitful because ultimately in the end, when we did move forward with a, a new bit of technology and it was successful, we had already thought about those next steps and we were able to go there. And so I, I think it's a critical aspect of, of piloting and, and just making sure that you go through those steps in advance of the pilot.
2: I, I love this. So t- two comments, Dan. So one is next at time. There should be a panel called CIO versus CIO. I think that would actually be a really cool panel to do. I don't think anyone's done that yet. So maybe park that one. Um, Second thought is really love your framing of it. So it makes me think about how when you think about, hey, what would it look like if we actually did this at scale in that feature state, you actually might realize, oh, wait, then we have to test assumptions A, B, and C in the pilot. But if you didn't imagine the feature state, you wouldn't actually know how to design the pilot to yeah. test the right hypotheses in the first place. You would just Or right. up against the wall and like hopefully you're doing the right thing in the pilot. It's a great point.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, in terms of where you should pilot, right? Yeah. Uh, don't just pilot in the place where you know it's going to work, right? right? Where you've got a champion. Pilot in the place where you know that they're going to be the most against it. They like, hey, technology, you know, and make sure it works there too because then you'd have a little bit more comfort down the line at, at rolling out more broadly.
2: May I ask you then? So, when you started piloting Ambient at Maine Health, how did you decide which initial groups to actually get access to it?
1: We thought broadly initially, and this was the earlier stages of the technology, there were more limited sort of domains that you could go after where they had trained the algorithms. And there were some focus areas that were suggested to us as ones that would lend themselves well. Fast forward now to large language models, and all of that is out the window, it works everywhere. But we did, again, with the discussion about how to do your pilots in mind, we went broad. We included both primary care providers, adult and pediatric. We included specialty providers of all types, you know, surgical, medical. We went really broad and geographies too. We, we didn't limit it to just one practice. We went to multiple different ambulatory practices. So we tried to get a pretty broad swath of providers to give us that representation that would inform you know, the next steps for us. We did choose providers that we thought would benefit from it the most. And so we used some signal data, which is uh, EPIC's representation for looking at audit logs and so on and being able to discern how providers are interacting with the system. And so we looked at folks who were spending a lot of time after hours doing their documentation. Uh, We looked at folks who were spending a long time doing their documentation, irrespective of when that was. We looked at folks who were not signing their notes until like three weeks after the visit. You know, all signs of a person who was potentially not exactly enjoying the documentation experience. And so that was how we ended up choosing the pilot participants. Mm -hmm. And we didn't mandate it. Obviously, we offered it to them. And uh, many of those folks raised their hands.
2: And I think part of it too is the initial folks use it, but then they end up being sort of like internal reference champions to future folks. So there will be organic spread, I guess, whether you heavily promote it or not.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And to that point, we now have like a waiting list of, of people <laughs> who want to get on board. Yeah. Oh, so they better be nice to you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. One of the so, few times that providers are nice to the CIO.
0: Well, that means you're onto something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So Dan, just being mindful of your time, we could probably chat for another four hours on all of these topics and more, but I want to flip over to the fast five lightning round, just five, five rapid fire questions for you. The first question we have, and I've changed them for you specifically, but the first question is, what do you think, if anything, the younger generations are missing when it comes to electronic music today, given how
1: accessible digital is compared to analog? Oh, that one's easy. The physical nature of going and buying a vinyl album. And I'm not even talking, forget about CDs, go further back, right? The artwork that you used to be able to appreciate the liner notes, all that's gone. I mean, yeah, you could sort of simulate it, I suppose, and read some blurbs on Spotify and and see a bit of art on Spotify, but vinyl and the, the physicality of it, the smell. The visuals, that's kind of lost, unfortunately. So I, I do wish that uh, that there was a way for that to make a resurgence. Well, heck, vinyl yeah, it, is resurging. So. That's right. Yeah. But yeah.
2: can kind I of make a joke, though? I'm guessing you don't think clinicians will ever feel that way about paper charts. No one's going to
1: no. say, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or the stacks, right? Yeah, that's
0: right. <laughs> Question two, Dan. What is your secret desire in 1976? And did you ever get a Moog? <laughs>
1: And I can't believe you found this Alan. So what this is, I, I posted somewhere. I, I, can't remember where I posted it, but I was, I was going through my mom's, uh, you know, in the house that I grew up in and my mom found some old boxes of my stuff, like old school work or something. And she found from, I think sixth grade or something, an essay that I had to write. And it was, and the title of the essay was my secret desire. And it had a cover on it and everything. And I was like a little nervous when I flipped it open to read it. And sure enough, the essay was all about my desire to get a Moog synthesizer. So even when I was 11 years old, somehow, I think it had to do with my older brothers and music they were listening to or something. So I did get a Moog um, and and I also sold the Moog, so I don't have one anymore. But yes, I did ultimately fulfill that, uh, that sixth grader desire. Nice. I love that.
0: I honestly don't know where I found that information either. But oh yeah, I'm going to go I'm digging really glad glad yeah. to see
1: where it is online.
0: That's too funny. Uh, question three that we have. Would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds?
1: Oh, totally read people's minds. Yeah, nice. that's an easy one. I mean, it would help you at work. It would help you in your personal life. Yeah, that's an easy one for me.
0: I love it. Uh, just a follow-up to that. What if you couldn't turn that power off?
1: Oh, Oh, now you're going to make me think a little bit, I'd still go for it.
0: (laughs) Not afraid of anything. I love it. Question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane?
1: I think we touched on this a little bit, but the whole AI advent has got a lot of people nervous and whether they would call it insane or not, I'm not sure, but I am, I, I won't say I'm not worried. I'm going in with eyes open and I'm, you know, emphasizing caution. But I absolutely think that this is going to be a tool for good and it's going to improve how we provide care, both actual care for the patient, but also all of the efficiencies and administrative challenges that that we're you know, dealing with and, and, and long for in terms of efficiency. I think it's gonna be a positive, so.
0: Love it. Last question that we have, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment, what would it be and why?
1: This is tougher for me. One thing that I've always thought about when you see footage of the, of Neil Armstrong and first, first, you know, human on the moon and the TV images and stuff, I I was born, but I was too little to, you know, be cognizant of it. That seemed like it was an incredibly exciting time and event. So maybe if I could come back as a slightly older human to have been able to experience that and just feel the emotion and experience it. That's what I can come up with right now on the spot.
0: Yeah, love it. Well, <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Dan. The hour flew by. I'm so excited that you can join us today. That's a wrap for this episode of the Digital Patient hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast, and you want to learn more, visit www.seamless.md. Dan, Dr. Nigren, again, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today and for being so candid and for entertaining
1: some of the wild questions that we had on the show today. Really appreciate it. Thanks to you both. And I really appreciate you guys going broad um, because I love talking about all of this stuff.